God is good. All the time. Hey, a couple things as we kind of get started tonight. First of all, we are re-envisioning how this service is, is going to work. It's not what we do. It's still going to be worship, word, simple, incredible. That's going to stay. What we are going to do is uh, lengthen our tent stakes, if you will. So from now on, I'm just going to officially declare cafe area. You are now worship space. When we start this service, you are worship space. So instead of a couple hundred of us feeling like we're in church and other people are in the cafe, we're all in church. This is all sacred space. I am grateful that uh, Nathan and his team got the speakers in out there. It sounds so good. We're excited about that. But I want everybody during this time just to lean into the presence of the Lord. Let's just lean into the presence of the Lord. Second thing is I want to invite you to pick up these invite cards right outside the door. It used to be it was on your way out, but now that we have extended worship space, some of you are going to have to come this way to get them, all right? These are cards that you give out and specifically invite people to going deeper. I can tell you, you're not going to take them away from something else because almost nobody has a Wednesday night service. And so this is just something you can invite people to, not feel like you're proselyting or anything of the sort, just offer the invitations. I love this service. This is my favorite night of the whole week. And I am always excited. You know what I feel like? I always feel like I get to Wednesday sometime and I feel like my, my cell phone, when that red thing comes up and my battery's almost done, and then I feel like when I come here, I just get recharged, just, just recharged. Last thing I want to say before we start, my message tonight for some of you is going to be a direct word from the Lord, and I want you to receive it as such. I don't know who that is, but I know there are several of you, and God is going to speak to you directly tonight through this piece of scripture from Philippians 3. Mentors have played a major role in my life, major. I think about the people I went to seminary with, the people I went to college with. There were people who made better grades than me. There were people who seemed more talented me and, than me in, in many ways. There were certainly people who had higher IQs than I did. And yet when I think back through my life, I think, wow, I, I've really, really been blessed. And how is it that God has specifically blessed me? I think sometimes the difference between me and people that I really think are incredibly talented and the fact that God's been able to use me in some really cool ways is that I've been blessed with great mentors throughout my life. I've just been blessed with, I think, some of the greatest mentors uh, on the planet throughout my life. These range from high school coaches to college professors to spiritual Guides to older pastors, to more experienced writers. I've been blessed to know most of these folks personally, and I'm honored by the reality that they took the time out of their lives to speak into my life. Others, I've really only heard at seminars. Some, I've really just read their books, but they too have impacted me in incredible 
ways. Early in my ministry, John Maxwell taught me more about leadership in my early days than I I ever could have learned on my own. And I've never met John Maxwell, and frankly, I haven't read a John Maxwell book in 20 years. But wow, did it make a huge impact on me at the time. Philip Yancey, I've never met Philip Yancey, but man, for about a 10-year stretch, did his writing make a major impact in my life. Haven't read him for 10 years, but still, people I've known, but there have been people I don't really know who still have impacted my life in great ways. In a day and time when everybody wants to focus on every bad thing that's ever happened to them. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? Everybody wants to focus on every bad thing that's happened to them. It's sort of like, I am miserable, therefore I am, right? Everybody wants to focus on that. I think we do well to remember those who saw something in us, those who encouraged us, those who invested in us, those who took a chance on us, and dare I say, those who spoke truth to us that we didn't want to hear when we needed to hear it. You know, I'm thankful for those who loved on me. They shaped and formed me and grew me, but I am equally thankful for those who shoved on me. I'm thankful for those mentors early in my ministry who just set me down and said, kid, you are not all that and a bag of chips. I am grateful for those who set me down and said, if you don't change your attitude, there's nothing good coming for you. I am grateful for those who said to me, sarcasm is not a spiritual gift. I am grateful to all of those people who love me enough to speak the truth. And sometimes when this truth is spoken to us, Okay, fine, fine. I mean, it's exactly what God wants you to do, exactly where you ought to be. But I'm just gonna say, if we will open up our hearts and hear what God's trying to say, we will be in a wonderful position for God not only to grow us, but to shape us and to forge us. At the risk of being a ping pusher, may may I open up with a challenge tonight? I want to encourage you to jot down the names of two or three mentors who have positively impacted your life, whether you personally know them or not, and give them a call, send them a message, email them, reach out in some way to them, and say thank you. Let them know that they made a difference in your life. Maybe even let them know specifically What made a difference in your life? You say, they they may not even remember you. They may not. But you remember them. And I can tell you this. Sometimes, in, in some of the most difficult stretches of my life and of my ministry, I have received cards, texts, direct messages from those kind of folks. And it made all the difference in the world because I needed to be encouraged. Sometimes your mentors need to be encouraged. And when you send those texts, it may just be you're hitting them at exactly the right time. I can't tell you how many times 
I've received, I'm going through a difficult time. You know, I, I tell the Lord all this stuff, and the Lord just tells me, shut up and go back to work, you know. And, and uh, I tell the Lord all this stuff, and, and then I'll get this note from somebody that says how much my ministry's impacted their life, and, and I'm almost embarrassed that I'm so weak sauce that God had to go out of his way to ping somebody to send me a note, you know. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, Lord, Lord. And yet, it's clear and present evidence that God is with us. I want to encourage you to send a note and say thank you. When it comes to appreciating people, there's no downside. When it comes to investing in people, there's no downside. You say, well, I've invested in people before, and it went bad. Of course it does. Of course it does. But they won't all go bad. Some of them will go really, really well. I love the parable of the sower for a hundred reasons, partially because of evangelism, because it reminds us that evangelism is high volume. It's just high volume. Spread the seed everywhere. You say, well, it probably won't grow here. That's above your pay grade. Just spread the seed everywhere. But I think mentoring is a lot like that, too. Uh, make yourself available to the people God brings into your life. Speak into their lives. If they can't handle it, so what? You haven't lost anything. Uh, if they draw in... And maybe God's going to use you in an incredible way. Just be open and say thanks. There's no downside. There's no downside to appreciating people. There's no downside to thanking people. There's no downside to focus on your blessings instead of every bad thing that's ever happened to you. Here's the deal. We've all had bad stuff happen to us. That's what we all have in common. Are you aware of that? Seriously, it's what we all have in common. We've all had bad stuff happen. Let's begin to focus some of our attention on the good things. Instead of all the bad people that's hurt us, why don't we focus some attention on the good people who've helped us? It's a really wonderful way to live your life. There's no downside to it. And when you say thank you, you'll feel great. You really will, because you've been a ping heater, not a ping whiffer. You'll 100% make their day. Even if it's an author you do not know, I guarantee you, you will 100% make their day, and God will be honored. Where's the downside? Where's the downside? Directly or indirectly, Paul is a mentor to the people of Philippi. He cares deeply about them. He knows they're going through a tough stretch of highway. But what I love most about this part of Philippians 3 is this comes from Paul's heart. Paul's not really a heart guy. He's a head guy. Paul's a driver. He's type A. And Paul just drives, 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 drives. Except here. You get to see his heart. And uh, when I get to see Paul's heart, I like him better. I just like him better. Uh, I connect with him more. What we're about to read is pastoral, just purely pastoral. Verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. You say, well, that's a bad start. In our way of thinking, Paul may seem arrogant in proclaiming himself a role model because what he's really saying is, is be more like me. When my daughter Lydia uh, just got out of college. She had a job interview coming up, and she said, Dad, can you give me some advice? I said, sure, sweetheart. Just be yourself. 
She said, what if that doesn't work? I said, then just be more like me. <laughs> she started laughing, and it took the edge off the whole thing. And of course, she did wonderful. Uh, Paul may seem a little arrogant here because he's kind of assuming that everybody would be better off if they were more like him. But in Paul's time, if a rabbi didn't live in such a way as their life should be emulated, then they lacked the moral authority to teach in the first place. So who you are matters as much as what you say. We heed Dave Ramsey's financial advice, not just because it makes sense, but because Ramsey has put principles into practice in his own life with great results. If I heard tomorrow that Dave Ramsey made a bunch of foolish financial decisions and was suddenly bankrupt, it would affect how I view his material. I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. The character and quality of the life of the teacher either adds or detracts from the message they are presenting. It just does. The idea that leaders are not and should not be expected to be role models is both a modern invention and stupid. Even against the specter of death, Paul is serving Christ every way he knows how. He can't preach, so he's writing. And praise God he wrote, right? We'd have none of this. So why shouldn't he invite people to follow his example? If you're living for Jesus, why shouldn't you invite people to follow your example? You say, I don't know how to invite people to church. I'm not a perfect Christian. I don't know any perfect Christians. But I do know this. If you're going to church, that's a good thing for people to do. They can at least follow your example there. You can at least follow your example there. Now, if you're inviting people to church and you don't go, I see a little integrity gap. <laughs> right? But if you attend church and, and God speaks to you and great things happen when you're at church, and I believe great things happen when I'm at church. Sometimes I'm in church and I just feel like I'm getting heaven practice, all right? There, there is no hypocrisy at all in inviting someone to emulate something in your life that you're actually doing. And there's no arrogance involved in that either. So here's the deal. If you're a Jesus follower... People are going to look up to you. So give them something to look up to. How's that for a really poorly constructed sentence? <laughs> give them something to look up to. Verses 18 and 19. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. And they think only about life here on earth. Always remember that Paul is writing to the church, not society at large. Paul never expected Nero to behave like a Christian, but he did expect Christians not to behave like Nero. He's writing to the church. Biblical teaching is for the church. And sometimes we forget that. It's for us. It's how we are to live. This is our ordered structure. He's not warning against the evil influences of those outside the church. He's warning against the evil influence of those inside the church. Just as there were holy rollers in Paul's day trying to recast the freedom offered in Christ back into stifling religion, there were also those trying to leverage that freedom into a license to sin. 
They argue that since Christ has set us free from the law and Jesus will forgive any time we ask, that moral behavior was of little consequence. As a result, many in the church were tempted to go back into their former pagan practices. I just want to state this for the record. Such teaching is, and has always been, an exit ramp out of the Christian faith. I think Proverbs said it best. You got to make sure we're not dogs that return to our vomit. If God has led you out of a vomit pool, don't go back. And don't let anybody tell you that the faith that was enough to save you isn't enough to keep you. Don't let anybody tell you that because it's not true. Certainly, Paul's calling out some people in the church. But he's doing so out of love. And he's doing so out of a broken heart. Sometimes you have to love people enough to tell them the truth. You say, well, I got a lot of people I'd like to tell the truth. Well, you might want to wait on that just a little bit. Paul is not an average church member. Paul is the leader of the early church, along with Peter, along with John. Paul has the moral authority to lead, to direct, to rebuke, and to hold accountable. And he's exercising his calling in doing this. Last month, I was reading some of my own blogs. I was really bored. Uh, I was reading some of my own blogs that I wrote a few years ago about the United Methodist Church. Uh, most of them were prophetic in nature. It, it told what I saw and said, if we don't make some changes, we're going to end up in a certain place. And as I read these blogs, I was struck by two realities, maybe three. Number one, what kind of loser reads, reads their own blogs? But let me get past that pretty quick. Number two is I was really right. I was right. And number three, there was absolutely no joy in it. There's no joy at all in it. I can't tell you how much I wish I was wrong. I can't tell you how much I wish I was wrong. Those of you reading the Old Testament with us, raise your hand. Those of you reading the Old Testament, when you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah's prophesying, right? Israel, Judah, if you don't turn from your sin to God, you're going down. Guess what happened? They didn't turn from their sin and they went down. Guess what Lamentations is? The prophet expressing his broken heart that he was right. He's expressing his broken heart that he was right. God's judgment is executed. The prophecies have come true. But it reminds us that oh, even though Jeremiah was right, the fall of Jerusalem still broke his heart. There's no joy in it. Let's take a moment to focus on exactly what Paul is saying. He, he's not giving generalities. Sometimes we get thinking, you know, that, that things are wrong because we don't like them. I don't mean this in a bad way, but who cares what you like? Who cares? Who cares what I like? That's personal preference. That is so far below kingdom grade. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Uh, that's not the issue. Paul is saying there are three really issues. They have nothing to do with your opinion on things or personal preference or anything else. He said there are three very specific viruses, if you will, 
that are infecting the church from the inside. From the inside. He said, these are causing people who have turned to Christ to fall away from Christ. This is serious stuff. Three. Number one, gluttony. How's that for something nobody preaches on? I know a lot of preachers who really preach hard on sin, but they have a fried chicken addiction. (laughs) Deep in our heart, we all really think the worst sins are the ones that other people commit. Did you know the Bible doesn't really offer levels of sin? There's not grades of sin. It's just sin misses the mark. Sin's just sin. And he's saying gluttony is a real problem. That's the number one problem. How long has it been since you've heard a sermon on gluttony? I'm guessing never. After tonight, one. (laughs) Right? This is one of the real advantages of the way that I teach the Bible. We go verse by verse, and it doesn't allow me to skip anything. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's really cool. I really like that. Sometimes I think, ah, you know, but no, it's awesome. Gluttony. What's translated gluttony really means those whose God is their belly. Those whose God is their belly. It's a failure in self-restraint. It's idolatry. But it's also a knife that cuts both ways. And this is what people today don't understand. Gluttony is putting food in the place in our lives where only God should be. It's making food an idol. Certainly, feasting, drunkenness, overeating were a primary feature of pagan cult worship. It's what they did. Gluttony is when all you talk about is at breakfast is where you're going to have lunch. And all you talk about at lunch is where you're going to have supper. And all you talk about at supper is where you're going to have breakfast. But did you know you can also miss the mark the other direction? It's a knife with two sides. Gluttony can also be focusing so much on your body image, your appearance, and not overeating, or only eating certain things, that not eating can become an obsession in itself. It swings both ways. It's not whether you are overeating on one end and undereating on the other. That's not the deal. What makes it gluttony is where you put food in the place in your heart where Christ alone should be. And it swings both ways. Swings both ways. I know a whole lot of people who wouldn't in a million years eat a Twinkie. But they don't read their Bible. It's both ways. Rather than serve as a means to the ends of fuel for the engine to serve God, gluttony fixates upon the fuel as an ends in itself. So may I use a really crude analogy? Rather than use the fuel to run the car, people are drinking the gas. They're drinking the gas. I 
last year, about this time, I, I just got convicted about some things in, in, in my physical life. My whole life, I've played athletics. Ten years ago, I was playing 100 ball games a year. Every night of the week, I was either playing a ball game or preaching. Every night. And, and I ate like a teenager. You know how they always say your taste gets more sophisticated as you get older? It didn't happen here. <laughs> Seriously, it didn't happen. I mean, people say, when you're older, you'll like Brussels sprouts. Flag. <laughs> Wrong. I still like pizza a lot with an ice cream chaser. Still a lot. It was all kind of getting out of hand. You know what? I was still eating like I always had, but I wasn't playing 100 ball games a year. And then I saw a picture of myself. I thought, wow, it's not great. And then God pinged somebody in this church with a training background, and they reached out to me. And they said, if you want to address this, God's put a ping on my heart, and I'd be glad to help you. Well, how can you turn that down, right? How can you turn that down? And so not only did it change what I eat and how I go about things, but more importantly... After you get it all down, now food is a non-central issue. Because a lot of times, the meals I eat are generally poopy tasting anyway. So there's no point getting horribly excited about them, right? Every morning, I eat a salad with balsamic vinegar and vegetables. That's not the stuff gluttons are made of. It's kind of like, where's the gravy? You know? I mean, seriously. And you know what? I think maybe for the first time in a while, food's probably found its proper place in my life. It's fuel. And every now and then I get a really good meal and I just enjoy it. Number two, sexual immorality. The other obsession about which Paul warns is the improper use of human sexuality. There are people today in progressive camps who say the sexual teachings of the Bible are now out of play, inconsequential. Flag, 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 flag. The one common theme of the Old and New Testament is that God's people behave different sexually than people who don't know God. It's a common theme. Old and New Testament. Ancient Greek culture and religious practice, I'm talking about pagan religious practice, was sexually charged. And if you don't believe me, look at their art. And look at their medicine. November 2010, took a small group to Corinth. Sharon, there you are. Anybody else on that trip that's here? All right, Sharon and I are the remainder of, of, of that, survivors of that trip, right? So, Sharon, incidentally, is still waiting on her bag from Israel from like 2008, but it's going to come any day now. All right. So we were in ancient Corinth, and I had this small group there. I'll be back there with some of you in 2024. We're doing a Greece-Turkey pilgrimage. How many of you are planning on going with me to that? Yeah, we're going to do a Greece-Turkey pilgrimage. We'll be right there in ancient Corinth. One of the days... Uh, we spent time in, in the ruins, and it's really kind of cool because Corinth doesn't have a modern city built on top of it. So you really do have the ruins. Philippi is the same one. 
Just inside the gate to the archaeological site is the temple of Asclepius. This temple is a pagan hospital slash spa where the sick came to be healed and some of the sick recovered. Because some stuff you're just going to recover from anyway, right? If you have a nice clean break of your arm and uh, you, you go to the temple, you're, you're going to get well, whether you went to the temple or not. But the common, uh, the, the way that they showed thanks to the God, small g, after they were healed in the temple of Asclepius, is they donated a terracotta image of the formally affected body part or parts. So when the archaeologists are there, they're, they're digging up all of these uh, dismembered terracotta body parts. And they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Well, because they depicted the body parts, we know that venereal disease ravaged ancient Corinth in Paul's time. Ravaged. Furthermore, since all these various and sundry body parts have holes in the top uh, and holes in them in various places, when you see them, hole, 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 when you see the holes in the ones that aren't broken, we know that they hung from either the ceiling or the walls. So I want you to kind of imagine this. The reason that you would hang all the body parts is sort of kind of have the dual effect to thank the gods for healing and to kind of instill optimism to new patients that you could be healed. For example, let's say your leg's hurting. You walk in, you see a leg. Wow, this is great. It's a specialist. So that's kind of how they thought of this, right? So they walk in and they see this. But to us, the temple of Asclepius would have seemed like something from a horror movie. There would have been body parts hanging everywhere. I want you to picture a room filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of clay representations of dismembered body parts hanging from the walls and dangling from the ceilings. And now I want you to imagine a really windy day. <laughs> and all the body parts are bumping into each other. You kind of have the most morbid wind chime in human history. But this is exactly what is being referred to. The New Testament is consistently clear that human sexuality is a gift from God. And the highest aim of that gift is the sexual union of a man and woman within the bounds of monogamous marriage. You may be thinking that this idea runs against the sensibilities of our modern culture. But here's what you need to understand. That idea ran against the sensibilities of Paul's culture just as hard as it runs against ours. Sex is a beautiful and necessary part of human existence. But when sex ventures outside the clear parameters that God has set for us, it misses the mark. I want to give you a little bit of teaching on spiritual warfare here. Satan isn't as powerful as God. And a lot of people think that God's maybe barely more powerful than Satan. Wrong, 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 wrong. One of the things Satan does not have is creative power. Satan doesn't create. What does Satan do? Perverts. He perverts. He takes what is good and he perverts it. He takes what God 
has placed in context and he perverts that. He says, no, 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 you'll be happier outside the parameters that God has set for you. I think it's a really powerful thing to think about. Adam and Eve in the garden. The old snake walks up to Eve because I think the snake walked. You know, now we have snake boots, but back then snakes were had legs. And so the, the snake kind of walks up to Eve, starts talking to her. Nobody thinks that's weird. I mean, that would have been a hint to me. You know, maybe something weird's going on here. Snake's talking. And Eve talks back. And the snake basically says, you know, it's a bad deal. God told you you couldn't eat from any of these trees. And then Eve says, well, we can kind of eat from some of the trees. And before long, Satan gets Eve lost in a game of unholy semantics. God said, you can eat of anything in this garden, but you stay away from this and that. And Satan said, did God tell you you couldn't do anything? No, no, no. He just said to stay away from this and that. You want to know why God said that? Because if you eat from that tree, you'll be as smart as God. Don't you want to be as smart as God? Satan didn't create the tree. He didn't create Eve and Adam. He just perverted truth. And that's why it's really important that we do not read or invite into our minds and life things that are evil, things that are demonic, and frankly, things are just straight-up heresy. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, read a lot of bad theology so you'll have an open mind. Nowhere. And that's why I'm really big. I don't have a problem with books about the Bible. That's all great. Unless you're reading those books instead of the Bible. I think that we really need to get back to understanding the Bible is, is the Word of God. Our best lives are lived according to the clear and consistent teachings of Holy Scripture. And we live in a culture who is constantly trying to pervert that. And Paul's saying, church, your best life is lived within the clear parameters that God has set for you. And I want you to hear this. God did not set the parameters of chastity and singleness and sexuality only within the confines of monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. God did not set that to cramp our style or to harm us. God set that because our best life is found there. Our best life is found there. And what non-Christians will never understand is that when we stand for traditional values, when we stand for traditional morality, we're not doing so out of hate. We're doing so out of love because we want people to experience God's best life for them. When Gentile people converted to the Christian faith, Few aspects of their lives would have been impacted more than the practice of sexuality. The standard of chastity and singleness and fidelity in marriage was nothing short of revolutionary in the Greco-Roman Empire. It was nothing short of revolutionary to adopt such a standard and then to turn from it back into your previous values and telling people it was okay to do that was really driving people out of the Christian faith. So many people say today, well, we just disagree 
on one thing. Wrong, 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 wrong. What we want to hold true to are the clear and consistent teachings of Holy Scripture because within those bounds, our best life and the best lives of those we know and love will be found. Number three, worldly values. Finally, Paul chastises those who claim Christ, but their real core values are not biblically informed or directed. We live in a time when people view theology through a political lens. I want you to sit with that a minute. We live in a time when people view theology through a political lens. And what I mean by that is they take their beliefs about politics, and that's the sunglass shade, and then they view theology through that lens. That could not be a more destructive way to do theology. What we really have to learn to do is to view politics through a theological lens. Understand what we believe about God, and then how does that apply to how we structure ourselves? Not begin with some idea of how you think we ought to structure yourself, and then try to twist and, and move God as, he were, as if he were some kind of eschatological gumby. Try to twist him into fitting our mold. We live in a day when it's hard to even talk about God without politics and partisan politics leaking in. You see, people of the world, their core values are not formed by the Bible. They're formed by their politics. Throughout the Old and New Testament, it is absolutely consistent that God's people are to place God first in their lives. There's no deviation from this. I'm going to push it further because this is a hard passage, so why not just go for it? There's no understanding of Judaism or Christianity without God in the central place in your life. It does not work without God there. It's absolutely consistent. The values of this world put humanity at the center of a cosmos of our own making and then imagines that everything revolves around us. The Bible places God at the center of the cosmos and recognizes everything revolves around him. In this sense, the church, church can't be something we do if we're not doing anything else. Church is why we don't do other things because church is what we do. We can't read the Bible if nothing good is on TV. We don't watch TV because it is our time to read the Bible. We can't pray because we have some extra time. We create time to pray and use the leftover time as we will. You see, God is either in the center of our lives or he isn't. Either is or he isn't. Paul's saying, church, ask yourself some hard questions. Ask yourself some hard questions. Because these viruses are running within the faith community. 
And I'm going to be so bold as to say these viruses are running within the American church today. Paul reminds us with these three stern warnings and through a broken pastoral heart that when we put God first in our lives, then everything else in life will find its proper place. But if we don't put God first in our lives, nothing will find its proper place.